Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. In Chicago's Hoop area, about 300 women formed Women Employed, better known as WE, because, explained one of the leaflets, we feel we are not receiving decent wages, our work is not respected, and we don't have promotional opportunities. Many of us have tried individually to change the situation, but have come to realize that only when women form a pressure group will be possible. We discovered that women are... 45% the hoop labor force, but earn only 25% of the wages. We grew to more than a thousand dues-paying members in over a hundred work sites. It exposed the sexist hiring practices of major employers in Chicago. One one million in back pay suits forced major companies to develop affirmative action plans, pressured the government to investigate sex bias, and won a state regulation banning the sale of discriminatory insurance policies. On April 21, 1976, Women's Office Workers' Day in New York City was marked by such traditional events as employers taking their secretaries to lunch and giving them gifts of roses. But it was also marked a lunchtime rally featuring the reading of a Women's Office Workers' Bill of Rights. While was also expressed objections to the frequent requirement that women workers perform all kinds of personal services for their employer. In a survey of 15,000 office workers, while found that 57% felt that they were not treated with respect as office workers and 33% reported sexual abuse, including threats of dismissal if they failed to comply with their employer's advances. Working women made the nation's banks a special target. About 1.25 million of some 2 million bank employees are women, and 85% of them are in low-paying, usually dead-end jobs. A campaign against the New England Merchants National Bank in Boston resulted in the promotion of more than a dozen women to officer level and the equalization of pay for female employees in several job categories. The campaign has caused the federal government to undertake its first major investigation of sex discrimination in the banking industry. President Newsbaum told an interviewer that her organization's experience shows that there is a broad potential for union organizing among clerical workers. She declared, One in every five workers in the clerical sector, and 80% of them are women, and yet the average salary is 12000 for a year for women clericals and 18000 for men. Some banks hire tellers just above minimum wage. It may take five to ten years, but eventually there's going to be a sweeping unionization of clericals. 
Several other unions have tried and are still trying to get these workers. The Teamsters were successful in organizing in 1900 co-workers at the University of Chicago, a result that was held as a major victory. District 65, now the UAW, has also made inroads among clerical workers of private universities, beginning with its successful organizing at Bernard College in New York. In 1974, District 65 has organized workers on the campus of Boston University, Union College, and Teachers College of Columbia University. Although Office and Professional Employees International Union, OPERA, was organized in 1945, until recently the AFL-CIO affiliate had been lethargic about organizing. It made a major breakthrough, however, when it issued unionizing several large offices of Blue Cross Blue Shield. The victory of OPEIU Local 29, a local of clerical workers at Blue Cross in Oakland, California, was particularly noteworthy. In 1977, Local 29, headed by President Edith Withington, a longtime militant in the labor movement, won the election at Auckland Blue Cross by the overwhelming vote of 747 to 141. However, it took a strike to gain a contract that included wage increases ranging between $80 and $200 per month, automatic raises, recognition of seniority, a grievance procedure, an extra holiday, and an end to subcontracting out certain kind of work. The union also won a provision for an agency shop, which meant that every worker in the unit at Blue Cross had to pay union dues or their equivalent in fees to their union. Commenting on the victory, President Withington declared, I think one of the reasons we won Blue Cross was that we came across with women. We were women out there handing out leaflets. Men too, but it wasn't a bunch of men trying to organize a bunch of women. We were not looking down on them. They were our sisters. And even though one didn't make an issue of women's rights per se, the fact remained that we were women. We are a union whose membership is predominantly women and whose leadership reflects it. According to a Department of Labor statistics, 97% of the household workers in 1976 were women. 53 were black, another 4% Spanish-speaking, and the remainder from a smattering of European, Asian, and Pacific cultures. Wages averaged $12,732 a year, less than the poverty level, and two-thirds of the workers earned under $12,000 a year. Household workers enjoy no fringe benefits, no sick pay, no paid vacations, no pensions, no health insurance, no overtime, no severance pay, and no workman's compensation. And in 29 states, there is no employment compensation for these workers. Perhaps the most concrete proposal for dealing with the issue facing women workers and one that could serve as a model for many trade unions is the resolution support quality for women adopted by the 44th UE International Convention in September 1979. The union pledged to continue to fight for no rates below common labor for women and for equal pay for work of equal value to support job postings and job training programs that would enhance women's skills and upgrade them 
into better paying jobs. To fight to make companies live up to their legal obligation to treat disabilities due to pregnancy as they would any other disability and to pay special attention to the elimination of conditions that would impair the ability of workers to have healthy children. The resolution continues. Our union supports the right of all women. They so choose to obtain safe legal abortions and we oppose cutbacks in Medicaid funding for abortions. UE also supports programs that guarantee quality pre- and postnatal care for all women and develop safe and effective birth control devices that are accessible. Our union continues to fight for the equal treatment of women under the law by working for the ratification of the ERA and by continuing to refuse to schedule meetings in any state which has not ratified the ERA. Our union supports federal funding for quality around-the-clock child care programs for the children of working parents and for the provision of extra sick time for workers with small children. Our union continues to support of other organizations involved in the struggle to achieve full social and economic justice for all women workers, and that we encourage fuller participation of our members in the coalition of labor union women, and be it finally resolved that we intensify its efforts to encourage the full participation of women in all levels of the union and their community. Then on December 4, 1979, the New York Times announced the trade union movement is about to undertake a major drive to organize women workers. In a joint statement, Samuel and Miller declared it is increasingly obvious that with each passing year, women are becoming a more important factor in the national workforce. Yet few unions have devoted enough serious thought to designing appeals aimed at attracting these millions of wage earners into union ranks. We believe that the exchange of ideas, experience, and plan at the first of its kind CLUW IUD conference will help pave the way to much greater union membership among women in the future, as well as increasing participation in the leadership of the union organization President Joyce Miller of CLUW and Elmer Chaddock, Secretary-Treasurer of the AFL-CIO Industrial Union Department, co-chaired the first-of-its-kind one-day meeting held in Washington, D.C. on January 23, 1980 to discuss ways to promote union membership among women workers. The hope of forging an alliance to bring more women into the labor movement drew about 200 participants, including international union officers, organizing directors from IUD affiliates, national and regional CLUW officials, and representatives of working women. Chaddock told the participants that the AFL-CIO Industrial Union Department hoped to establish a lasting ongoing relationship with the women's groups. He insisted that trade union fundamentals are as good today as they ever were, but he warned that our approach our sensitivity to the special needs of women workers, our efforts to reach out to them as union members and potential union members, all of these needs rethinking and improvement. In 1952, a women's worker at General Motors AC Sparks Plug Division in Flint, Michigan, published an 
article entitled, Listen Here, Union Brothers. After describing the discrimination against women in her plant, which employed about 10,000 shop workers, most of them women, and the absence of female representation in the union's leadership, she tried to explain why women had not done more about the situation. Because of years of company intimidation, because jobs are scarce, and mainly because of the division the company has been able to create between men and women. It has been difficult for women to tackle these questions. It is also twice as difficult for a working woman to become active in the union as for men because she has the responsibility of the home when she leaves the shop. In her appeal to union brothers, the automobile worker concluded, the myth that women are not militant will be shattered. Women have brought very special strengths to every institution and organization in which they have been involved. This is a strong tradition and the labor movement has to draw from this tradition. It's very important that men recognize this and see the participation of women as a factor in building a strong labor movement. That draws this series to a conclusion. Our next series will be on the $15 minimum wage issues. I would like to clarify that this podcast is pro-union, but that we feel that unions need to be honest about past mistakes and learn from those mistakes. In discussing them, we make all aware of them so that they will not be repeated. In the case of this series, we have discussed many mistakes, some by specific unions, that is not based on any bias for or against any union. I was thrilled that most unions have improved dramatically on these issues, but have even more improvements to accomplish, some more than others. I'm also aware that in this series, politically correct terms were not used at times because of quotes and the language used at the time these statements were made. I hope that all will understand that these were made then and not a choice made by this podcast today. Thank you for being loyal listeners. Have a great day. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members converse.